Before we start, we have a couple of announcements. The first is a heads up to listeners who might not have seen our social media posts about this, but we put up a slightly edited version of our last episode, our interview with the amazing Allison Rollins, that was modified to remove just the name of Cody Levine's survival course. And we did that because a listener who's from Australia actually got in touch with us to let us know that Cody's course name contains a word that's a slur in Australia, a racial slur used against indigenous people there. We removed it from the show to protect future listeners, but lots of people, of course, had already heard the episode, and they might also not have known what they were hearing. So this is a PSA to our listeners, and it's also an apology to listeners who did know and might have been hurt or disturbed to hear us mention it so casually. It's also a big thank you to our listener who pointed this out to us. We really appreciate the call-in and the chance to try and repair that to the extent that we can. Our second announcement is one you also might have seen on social media, which is that Queers at the End of the World is seeking scripts. We're going to produce a series of short audio fictions oriented towards queer utopian futures. You can find the call in the form to submit your ideas on QueerWorlds.com under Radio Plays. Some of the the materials I was looking at were saying that the sort of appropriated version of the Wendigo is this very non-human monster, like werewolves, vampires. We're thinking Yeti. Um, this is like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like those guys actually don't go to a party together. But like, the Yeti, like those are not my friends. <laughs> I'm just a snow creature. <laughs> Wait, but like Nina, you don't think that they all go to like the monster mash together? I mean, it is a graveyard smash, but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the Yeti is just not is like not into parties. They're all there, like <laughs> it's dancing, and the Yeti is like, no, like this is not my scene. And just being like, it was really nice to be invited, and it was really nice to say no. <laughs> undercarriage of a giant flying mutant kumquat. So all letters just start, Dear You. I'm your host, Nat. And I'm your host, Nina. And today we're talking about Wabgesha Grice's novel of apocalypse and survival in the far northern wilderness of the North American continent. It's called Moon of the Crusted Snow, and it's from 2018. Uh, Nat and I both really, really loved it, and we really wanted to talk about it, but we also wanted to kind of make sure that there were some other voices brought into a conversation, given that like it was a lot of us talking last month about Boys in the Woods. So we get to have both and, which is my favorite thing to have, definitely a cake and eating type of butch. So we're going to talk to Wabgesha Grice on this episode, and we're going to talk about the novel afterward. So since this is a newer novel, and we want to make sure that listeners get a chance to read it unspoiled, if that's their preference. What we're going to do is we're going to use the publisher's plot summary to avoid giving anything extra away, uh, just with the caveat that they kind of mention like a stranger who shows up and we're going to reference that stranger by name, which is Justin Scott. And other than that, we're going to try and avoid any spoilers um, until about 50 minutes in. After the conversation with Wob, we'll give you another warning and there'll be some spoilers ahead. So here's the plot of Moon of the Crusted Snow. With winter lubing, a small northern Anishinaabe community goes dark. Cut off, people become passive and confused. Panic builds as the food supply dwindles, while the band council and a pocket of community members struggle to maintain order, and an unexpected visitor arrives, escaping the crumbling society to the south. Soon after, others follow. 
The community leadership loses its grip on power as the visitors manipulate the tired and hungry to take control of the reserve. Tensions rise, and as the months pass, so does the death toll due to sickness and despair. Frustrated by the building chaos, a group of young friends and their families turn to the land and Anishinaabe tradition in hopes of helping their community thrive again. Guided through the chaos by an unlikely leader named Evan Whitesky, they endeavor to restore order while grappling with a grave decision. So even if you haven't yet read Moon of the Crusted Snow, I think anyone who's listened to the last few episodes will probably see why we're so excited to find out about this book. Um, It really brings together so many of the different subjects that we've been talking about. We have survival in the wilderness because Evan is a really skilled hunter. He's chopping wood. He's building structures in the bush. He's tanning hides. But then we also have this worldwide apocalypse and systems collapse and this marginalized understanding of apocalypses as multiple and subjective. And we have alternate models of masculinity. There's, on the one hand, this quiet, loving person, Evan, who's in, you know, a very collaborative relationship with his wife and his kids and his, you know, male friends and his dad and his mom and, like, very much in community. And then we have this, like, blustering, authoritarian, violent guy, Justin Scott, who's really a kind of distillation of the white, macho, toxic, prepper, survivalist guy that we keep finding at the heart of so many of these dystopian stories that we've talked about. I think, you know, what some of these stories might feel like if they were not written just from the perspective of, like, you know, white male settlers is part of the impetus for Wabgeshe Grice when he was writing the book in the first place. I've read some interviews with him where he talks about having grown up on dystopian genres and really enjoyed dystopian fiction himself, but wanting to kind of talk back to those conventions from his own perspective, growing up in an Anishinaabe community in Wasoxing, Ontario. And he talked about kind of like wanting to speak back to that trope of, you know, this white settler survivalist as the sort of main character of all these dystopias. And I feel like that's what really drew me to this book too. Um, We haven't talked so much directly about him, but there was this kind of character that, you know, kind of came up in our very first episode on Parable of the Sower of this like sheriff guy. (laughs) The prepper. The prepper. Yeah. And you wrote about him in your article on Autostraddle as, as this kind of figure who's been kind of haunting your own experience for a long time. Yeah, it's been so interesting thinking about this guy. It's almost like part of my own personal mythology. And it's definitely an antagonistic figure. It's representative of like toxic individualism, I think, and of course, toxic masculinity. And in some of our conversations, I think this character has been sort of representative of like a colonizer, um, Mm -hmm. a settler um, that you know, I, you know, as a white person have to wrestle with being part of my own history and also something that I just, I want to distance myself from. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's been really interesting thinking about that fraught relationship that I have with it. And I loved so much in Moon of the Crusted Snow that that guy shows up and he is the antagonist in this book. Yeah, it's so many of these books. He's the hero. He's the hero of The Last of Us. Like, Joel is that guy. Yes. He's the hero of The Road. He's like, he's the hero of most American dystopian fiction. And yeah, he's the bad guy here. (laughs) It's so great. You know, I mean, it's not great that that guy is out there aggressing people, but in the vein of listening to a sad song when you feel sad, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. 
it, it's it's a recognition of your feeling of this this character being a threat where when he's the hero, there's a sense of disorientation. And then mm-hmm. in a book like this, there's a feeling of orientation. Like it's aligned with my feelings about that character rather than destabilizing my sense of what's real, which is very much what happens in those other those other stories that focus in on this character and celebrate him. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way of describing it. It's interesting, too, because I think, you know, this isn't the first story I've read where there's a bad guy that's kind of based around the most like frightening aspects of this sort of toxic masculine authoritarian kind of fascist figure. And when I think of that character, I think of um, AMC's The Walking Dead and The Walking Dead comic book series, which has this bad guy, which is this character of Negan. There's a negotiation, I feel like, that happens in in a series like The Walking Dead, it's essentially like one sheriff prepper guy, like literally Rick Grimes, the main character that shows a sheriff, versus another sheriff prepper guy who's like the like projection of the evil parts of the one sheriff guy that like right. <laughs> and they're and they're just you know they're the same guy it's just one of them gets to be like you're the bad version of me <laughs> like so it's like one guy who's like i'm the good guy and then the other one is just him but with a mustache <laughs> it's like, like literally that like he actually does have a mustache <laughs> and a leather jacket it's like <laughs> oh my god yeah so it's like well this is a big range of different characters that you've explored in this series, you know? <laughs> yes, it's like, it's like, how do we get from point A to point B? And point B is always, like, violence, destruction, and autocracy. The distance between point A and point B is, like, a city block, you know? Like, we're definitely, like, containing this in a... Yeah, a and it's all... Range. The whole city block is owned by the same landlord, which is White's heteropatriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> It's a luxury building. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like, I feel like it's just this book is doing something else. (laughs) You know, like we're always looking for that something else. And this is one version of that something else. And I find it really interesting because I think in a lot of ways, Moon of the Crusted Snow is not the utopian vision that I kind of thought I would get. It's like, if we're talking about something else, like let's build our beautiful island, you know? Yeah. Um, And this book doesn't quite do that. Yeah, this book doesn't do that at all. I mean, it's not about like the difference between a utopia and a dystopia um, in that kind of binary way. It's definitely exploring apocalypse. It's definitely exploring all kinds of complex issues in a group of people trying to figure out how to survive, you know, from a, a compromised reality into another compromised reality. And I mean, to me, that's one of the things that makes it such a great book. Yeah. So so we were talking about like that moment where Justin Scott shows up and both of us were just like, ah, kill him, dump him in the snow. <laughs> 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 don't let him in, don't let him in. I mean, it was it was painful. Um that moment and i i too was was screaming at the book wanting them not to let him in wanting him not to be there and that feeling is definitely something that i think the book is playing with yeah i think so too and i think it raises a question that feels 
really relevant to me on the podcast, just thinking about the fact that like, we're doing that too, you know, in, in some ways, like, like, we're always making fun of him. But like, he's been with us since the first moments of the first episode. And that's because he's the center of so many dystopian stories. And I feel like it's this sort of desire to understand this figure, you know, ma- like maybe in order to to kind of kick him out of our heads a little bit. But I definitely appreciated and was just interested to see how a person who's coming from Anishinaabe culture and coming from um, growing up, you know, as part of Wasoxing First Nation, like Wab, comes to and decides to let this guy into his book and into his head in the way that he does in order to write it. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear him talk about that because... As far as this podcast goes, I, I've been conflicted about that myself in the art that you and I are making um, and thinking about my own tendency to, to kind of bring that, that figure up and think about him and talk about him and analyze him. Um, again, this like prepper sheriff guy on a scary snowmobile. You know, it, it's like we were saying, it's not this thing where the then therefore like we should create like oh, uh, this like fun reality where everything's made out of like candy and he's just like not there. (laughs) But then like, it's also like, you know, why am I giving this guy so much of my analysis and attention? And um, hasn't he already had enough of that from popular media and the imagination of a, you know, settler colonialist white cis heteropatriarchal you know, overculture that prioritizes him as the hero of so many stories we've read. Yeah. And I think then we get to this place where it's like, it's not, it's not just about the room he takes up. It's also about kind of correcting our relationship to him and our understanding of what it means when he shows up. Like, just because he's in the room doesn't mean that we have to listen to his voice, you know? I think that's a good way of saying it, Nina. And one of the cool things about this episode is that we actually get to talk to Wabgeshig Rice about this guy and about the entire book of Moon of the Crusted Snow. So yeah, we're going to go into our interview with Wabgeshig Rice. We're going to start with this question of like why focus on Justin Scott and why focus on this prepper character. Um, And we also want to let you know that we're just going to include an excerpt from our interview with Wob here, and the full interview is going to go on our Patreon page. Um, but it's not like we're all rolling in the wealth of interviews with amazing Indigenous authors that we should be. So if you're, you know, if you're not in a position to be a Patreon member and you would like to access the full interview, just send us an email at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com and we'll, we'll just send you a link to it. Thanks so much for joining us, Wob. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I'm really stoked to chat with you both. Wonderful. Well, um, the villain in Moon of the Crested Snow shows up, um, this character, Justin Scott. And, you know, both of us kind of talked about, like, just sort of wanting them to shoot him on sight. (laughs) 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 In so many post-apocalyptic fictions, that guy's the hero. Yeah. Um, And so, like, what, what led you to bring that character into the narrative as part of it instead of, you know, maybe, you know, maybe not shooting him, but maybe just leaving him out? Yeah, it's interesting you frame it that way because I hadn't really considered that, you know, he would potentially be the hero in another kind of story like this from a different community's perspective. Um, uh, He was always going to be, you know, the antagonist. Um, The major plot point of the story was going to be 
this visitor coming in after this blackout in a time of vulnerability and manipulating and exploiting the people, right? Uh, so, you know, I, as I was dreaming up the story, I was sort of trying to develop that and figure out how it was going to happen. And it got to the point where I was about a month into actually writing the prose, you know, like typing words onto the screen that I really had some serious doubts because I didn't necessarily know if people were going to believe that if a guy from a city was going to seek refuge in a far northern reserve, you know, um, I thought, what if people get to this point and say, well, that's just not believable at all. I'm giving up on the story and tossing this book away, right? Uh, so it was like a bit of a crisis point for me personally as a writer. And uh, my wife and I were living in Ottawa at the time, uh, the, the capital of Canada, and uh, we were um, at a Halloween party. Uh, this was the fall of, um, I guess, 2015 was when I really started writing uh, the, the novel. And uh, we we're at this Halloween party. And because, you know, I the apocalypse was front of mind because I was immersing my head in that kind of event. I guess that's all I really was talking about. So I don't, I don't necessarily know if I was a fun. I know that feeling. Yeah. If I was a fun conversationalist at like parties, but anyway, all that to say, I ended up having this conversation with this random guy at this party and we're talking about the end of the world and, you know, what our plan would be um, if, you know, everything went down and, you know, it was the end. And he said, you know what? The first place, the first thing I'm doing is loading up my truck and driving to the res, driving to the reserve. And I said, oh, yeah, uh, which res? And he said, whatever one I can get to first, the closest one. <laughs> and I, I didn't say this to him, but I thought, you know, like that that's a little presumptuous that you can just go. <laughs> so then I asked him, I said, well, why would you want to go there? And he's like, well, you know, like the people there know how to hunt and live on the land. And I know I can hide out there and uh, I'll just wait it out on the res. And I was like, okay, wow. you know, like, just, just think, yeah, just thinking about this guy's uh, assumption of, you know, being able to, to colonize this place essentially, yeah. right? That he'd yeah. never even been to. And I thought, okay, there is one guy out there in the world who believes this. So I can go ahead with Justin Scott, you know? <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is like that moment when you're talking to a writer at a party and it's like, little do you know that the writer's like, yes, you are my villain. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was like, it was like a moment of celebration. So, you know, I went home, my wife and I went home and I was like, okay, gotta open up the laptop. I gotta get going on the story again, you know? <laughs> That's so Gosh. awesome that you get like that. This guy's like total entitlement. Yeah, <laughs> it's a positive moment for you. <laughs> yeah, it it all makes fun. sense. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's sort of like the I guess the validation uh, of Justin Scott to me personally. But you know, to further develop him, uh, you know, I just poured everything that I loathed about bad people into this one character, and uh, you know, as much as I could, I you know tried to make him. I guess a metaphor for colonialism, you know, um, he's mysterious, he's not truthful, he's uh, not forthcoming at all about his background, and he has all these skills and, and resources that he's brought with him that, you know, he can use to, to take control, right? And uh, so it was fun thinking about him that way. Well, it's really interesting to hear you say this whole concept of like creating this character that's just 
everything you don't like about bad people. And, you know, we made this connection where we have been creating a character like that on and off on this podcast. I was just interested in it as this kind of like myth making. And I later read in the back of the book uh, about the connection between Scott and the Wendigo. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um, How did that mythological creature or character emerge for you as you were kind of writing the sort of dream side to this, this story and thinking through the construction of this, this villain? Yeah, I think that was a bit of a revelation for me too, as I was writing it and, and, you know, even before when I was dreaming it up, uh, you know, as mentioned, Scott was going to be this allegory for colonialism. He was going to represent how, you know, indigenous peoples have been displaced and then, you know, brutalized and so on. Right. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, this, this story takes place mostly in the winter. Um, it's about a community that becomes vulnerable in the winter and then somebody swoops in and uh, attempts to not just, uh, I guess, uh, exploit the people, but consume them and get them on his side mm. at the same time. And and there was a bit of an aha moment as I was thinking about it. And, and I thought, holy geez, this is like a Wendigo story. You know, this is exactly the kind of story I heard from my elders about the Wendigo. And, and for your listeners who may not necessarily be familiar with the Wendigo in, uh, in the Shnabe culture and also in, in some other indigenous cultures, like I know the Mishkego Cree, uh, the Cree people who live um, up sort of in the James Bay area of northern Ontario, uh, they have a Wendigo in, in their stories too. And traditionally, uh, from our culture's point of view, what I heard the Wendigo stories, uh, what they were supposed to do was really deter people from cannibalizing each other, right? Uh, so we would hear mm-hmm. these stories from our elders when we were kids, and they'd say, you know, if you ever ate another person, you would turn into a Wendigo. And and then we'd hear these stories about the Wendigo and, you know, how bad they were and how, you know, they would come in and try to turn other people into a Wendigo. And, and then you just have this arise of this evil force um, that would really jeopardize everything about your community and your culture and so on. Uh, so yeah, I didn't mention the Wendigo explicitly in the text itself um, because I wanted to see if people picked up on that. And I wanted to see how they put, I guess, the hints together about it. But then I realized, you know, I can't leave it too vague and I got to give my dad a shout out hmm. in the acknowledgements because he's the one who's you know, <laughs> told me the most about the Wendigo since I was a kid, right? Um, but most most importantly to me, it was a way to pay homage to you know my culture and pay homage to our traditional stories and and that I guess oral method of storytelling that really has you know maintained and uh, expanded and perpetuated Anishinaabe culture, you know, since time immemorial, even more recently in the face of like brutal colonialism, right? My gosh, I feel like there's such, there's so many interesting dimensions to that because this idea of this thing you become when you eat someone else feels like it has, I mean, uh, you know, there's the actual idea of cannibalism, but then there's also like the colonialist sort of consumptive attitude towards taking land and extracting resources that feels like it's part of that same idea of, you know, 
kind of turning into this horrible thing as a result of, yeah, like entitlement and exploitation and just showing up and being like, I can consume and, you know, eat whatever I want. (laughs) Yeah, I I was going to say, and the book seems to me like it's really interested in exploring a kind of masculinity that isn't toxic to other people and, and things and to the land. Um, you know, you've got this like kind of horrible, toxic macho guy who's the who's the villain. And then there's a whole bunch of characters. Evan, who's the main character, is his friends Tyler and Izzy, Walter and and Dan, who are a couple of the elders. Um, and they're all pretty macho in their way. And so I'm wondering how you see masculinity and I guess gender more broadly as tied in with the themes of apocalypse and survival that you're exploring. Yeah, I think. You know, the story is told primarily through the perspective of men, of this uh, core group of young men who are tasked with, you know, trying to help their community survive this this threat and this crisis, you know. But at the same time, they are left, I guess, in a very introspective moment um, because all the distractions of the external world have fallen away. And as a result, the... Uh, ideals about masculinity have at the same time, which I think came as a result of colonialism in Christianity. And that really has altered a lot of ideas about manhood in a lot of Indigenous cultures and communities. And I, I think about my own background and my own community too, when I sort of am introspective about this on my own. And just how, you know, we aren't that far removed from, I guess, uh, a pre-contact time, generally speaking, right? And my community in particular, you know, was only settled onto this island that it now inhabits, you know, roughly 140, 150 years ago. And prior to that, you know, yeah. uh, my ancestors freely traversed the shoreline of Georgian Bay since time immemorial. You know, they followed the food, mm-hmm. um, they moved according to season, they built shelter where they had to, and so on, Right. Uh, but as a result of, you know, treaty misinterpretation and then the Confederation of Canada, you know, in the 19th century, uh, that meant that they had to go out onto this island, you know, where they couldn't farm anymore. Um, and then they looked back out onto the mainland and logging became the primary industry in the Perry Sound, Ontario area. So they watched as all the trees that they'd known since forever were being cut down and clear cut. And their world was ending basically before their eyes, Right. And then what happened after that was uh, the Indian Act came into law uh, back in 1876, and that forbade culture uh, and ceremonies from happening in, in the community, and that made it right for Christianity. And I think that really changed any traditional ideas around gender um, and gender diversity within the Anishinaabe community as a result. And you had this um, influence of a heavily masculine uh, way of life uh, come to dominate. And, you know, you had this sort of macho um, vibe really take over. And and my, my dad and I talk about this pretty often. And, um, you know, I, I always give him a lot of credit. And I give my mom, obviously, a lot of credit, too, because she had to help my dad through this, you know, um, as he was becoming a father on his own. But uh, he grew up uh, without a dad, essentially. You know, his dad died tragically due to an alcohol-related mishap in a boat when my dad was only five years old. So uh, my grandmother was left to raise five children on her own, and she later adopted two more. And this was during an era when Indigenous children were being apprehended to record 
degrees by the state, right? Like they were put into what were called residential schools where, you know, essentially they had the culture beaten out of them or else they were apprehended to go live with white families elsewhere. Um, So my grandmother, though, resisted that. And I think as a result, my dad had a heavily feminine upbringing. You know, he had these strong women in his life who Mm. really showed him how to be a man uh, because he, you know, Mm -hmm. had to figure it out on his own. You know, he, he lacked a father. He did have uncles, of course. But, you know, I think a lot of these guys were really wrapped up in this macho ideal that came in from external forces, you know. Um, and a lot of this, I should say, is, is my own interpretation of, of my family history and of my community's mm-hmm. culture. Um, but, you know, I, I have been raised um, equipped with the ability to take a look back at that and really understand the impacts of uh, Christianity and what it did to masculinity, uh, specifically amongst the Anishinaabe mm-hmm. people that I'm descended from. Um, So as my dad grew up and then he had sons of his own, you know, he really um, didn't have much of a template to go by. But he, you know, Mm -hmm. wanted to raise us uh, deeply uh, influenced by our culture. You know, Um, by that point, you you know, the Indian Act amendments that forbade culture and ceremony had been lifted, had been stricken from official law. So, you know, our community was able to return to ceremonies once again, you know, by the 70s and 80s. And that's when I grew up. I grew up in the 80s at this time when this reconnection with culture was really happening. And as a result, I think I had a more healthy, uh, well-rounded view of gender and of the importance mm-hmm. of gender diversity within our community. And and I think, um, you know, it took a while for a lot more uh, diverse gender identities to emerge and to flourish. And of course, that's due to the time, right? But, you know, it was a while before I became aware of, you know, queer relatives and queer community members. But once they were empowered to be themselves, I think our community became a, a healthier place. And, and that was a result of healing from being colonized, right? Uh, so now that I'm a dad to two boys on my own, like I, I just understand how how vital that is, you know, how important it is to move away from what somebody tried to brainwash us into thinking masculinity mm-hmm. was, you know, and and that's what I tried to show with each of the characters in, in Moon of the Crescent Snow, each of the male characters, and and one thing that I think I I always want to highlight is that. You know, the male characters in the story are, are the most unstable. They are the most unsure. They, they mm. lack confidence uh, compared to the, the women mm. characters. And the women characters really are the central figures and the foundation of culture and stability and awareness, mm. you know. So, uh, and, and again, that's how I, that's what my upbringing was like. That's what I saw happen in my community. The women really leading the way and telling the men what to do to, to heal, to overcome all these colonial outcomes, you know. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's a lot to, to pack into that answer. And, and But yeah, those are just some of the things I tried to be mindful of when I was writing it. I was just thinking of a, a moment in the book when um, Evan is with his dad and his dad starts telling him this dream that he had. And there's this moment where Evan is like, oh, my dad doesn't usually tell me his dreams. This is kind of unusual. Um, and... I think that 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 moment is emblematic of this because it feels like his his father is being a little bit vulnerable and changing the tone of the conversation to something that feels less concrete and more emotional. And then Evan doesn't respond to him by 
taking advantage of something that might be perceived as feminine or vulnerable. And instead, he receives like the telling of this dream and this way of curiosity, I guess, and interest in like what's going on in his dad's head. And that felt like that, you know, non like aggressive and toxic type of masculinity to me. And I just thought that was a cool scene for the way they related with each other for through this sort of like mutual respect um, basis to their relationship. Yeah. And, and, and part of that, um, that opening up process is, you know, recognizing one's own vulnerability and being able to, I guess, explore it a little more and dig out some of those insecurities and some of those, uh, I guess, fears in many ways, right? Um, because I think the idea, the misconception is that if you don't talk about it, then, you know, those things don't exist. You know, you just have to put up this right. this facade of being strong and being unwavering and so on. But, you know, we all know by now that is totally unhealthy and that is not the way to respond to, you know, a major event or a crisis. And I think uh, Indigenous people in general um, who have been colonized have been conditioned to do that, have been conditioned to handle it in that way. And that has resulted in a lot of destructive behavior and a lot of really um, cyclical abuse uh, that continues to this day. And, I, you know, what I see, what I've seen in my lifetime is a more of an openness and more of um, more venues and more opportunities to be vulnerable and to share in ways and to talk, especially as men, about, you know, the things that trouble us, you know. Uh, and, and that's, you know, what Anishinaabe culture is rooted in is sharing those things and being able to talk about those uh, troubles in a respectful and constructive way. Um, so yeah, I think that I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that dream part because that's sort of just the tip of the iceberg for Dan, right? It, like he's, it, it's almost like a premonition for him. Like things are changing. This dream yeah. came to him and yeah. he's like, well, maybe I have to change some things about myself, uh, in order to really, um, I guess, adapt and understand this change that's coming to us, you know? And, and then later on you see him open up a lot more and he becomes like the storyteller, right? So, mm. Yeah. 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 Well, I loved how, as you were thinking, I think, in the story through this kind of process of reconnecting with stories and ways of being that colonialism has interrupted and tried to destroy, and also kind of recognizing the complexity of living in a present where all of that has happened and is so much a part of people's bodies and experience in this close-knit Anishinaabe community, you know, folks are in some ways really glad to be rid of this, like, hegemony of the colonial state. And in other ways, folks are living a life that's adapted to it. And that includes, you know, everything from, like, survival mechanisms that might have been necessary at one point, but are, you know, aren't helpful anymore, like keeping everything inside to things that people feel real grief and loss for, like the scene where uh, Nicole is grieving the loss of her wedding that she had hoped to have in her white dress. And I really just appreciated the reflection of the complex feelings that people have about the systems that they're living in and that they're embedded in, even when those systems are kind of a disaster in, in a lot of ways. And, and I'm sure that has a lot of resonance for people right now as they're coping with COVID and climate change and all the different failures that this capitalist colonial settler yeah. state <laughs> has inflicted on us all. Um, 
and I'm wondering if that's something that you were kind of consciously thinking about. It, it sounds like it as you wrote the book, like avoiding the idea that that Gowanda-kun First Nation, which is this fictional setting of the story, like avoiding the idea of utopia as soon as like the colonial system collapses. Yeah. I, and, you know, I think speaking for myself only, you know, I feel like, I embody a paradox in many ways. You know, I, you know, try to champion Nishnabe culture and Nishnabe storytelling and Nishnabe language. But most of what I do is a result of colonialism. You know, I make a living off the English language. I speak primarily mm-hmm. English. You know, I have a very, I guess, infantile knowledge of Nishnabe Emwin. And, you know, what I do 95% of the time is, you know, Canadian influenced. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. I, I wrestle with this stuff pretty much daily. And if it was all to disappear, of course, I'd miss it. Of course, I'd have a really hard time coping with going back to the land because, you know, I've lost some of those skills and, and maybe I didn't have enough mm-hmm. of those skills to begin with. But I think part of realizing that is really going beyond, I think, a binary that colonialism has embedded in us of either good or evil, black or white, or male or female, you know? Um, and and you have somebody like Nicole, I guess, uh, also embodying the struggle of, of being used to this way of life that has been imposed upon her and her people, um, yet trying to move beyond it while returning to the old ways, right? And mm. returning to some of those old ideals. And I don't know what the solution is, you know, I will probably die not knowing how, you know, we can, I guess, reclaim that essential spirit of being Nishnabe. And, uh, you know, some people probably haven't figured out. um, But I guess being able to channel it into a literary way and put all of my own doubts and insecurities into a book is, is maybe Mm -hmm. kind of a privilege too, um, and bring and bringing people along for the ride in some ways. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I think now, like, I have seen, you know, such dramatic change in my life, you know, over the course of 41 years. Um, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I grew up in a time where I barely knew what being the Shinabe meant. And I basically knew mm-hmm. that I had brown skin, but that, uh, that's what basically differentiated me from the white people in town, which is the skin color. Uh, but as my childhood went on, you know, I became more aware of these things. And I learned a lot more about our history and so on. And then, you know, the rest of society slowly started coming along for the ride. And and here in Canada, you know, there is a bit of progress. There's still a huge uh, distance to go. Um, but what happened within the last decade was there is what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that was this national sort of fact-finding mission to, I guess, uh, get stories about the residential school system. Um, and then mm-hmm. teach Canadians about it because hardly any Canadians learned about it in school. You know, it was like this dark secret that yeah. nobody knew. Uh, so that's like part of wrestling with that colonial history too, and, and really understanding how that defines us. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah just it, it's, it's an ongoing journey. Um, but I think documenting it in some way as a writer is, is maybe um, my part in helping us all figure it all out. I mean, just thinking along those lines, we sometimes when we talk about dystopias and some of these like crappy apocalyptic futures you get in some of the 
dystopias that Moon of the Crusted Snow is talking back to. Um, we, you know, we like to talk back by, um, you know, thinking along those lines as far as hopefulness and, you know, um, adaptation and thinking about like a future that we get to tell or, you know, a, a future that's, you know, shaking off some of the, the, the threat of like the prepper, the Justin Scott figure. And so we always like to kind of say like, how does hope figure into the story you're telling and the stories that you want to tell? For this one in particular, I think the hope lies in the reset button, uh, the opportunity uh, for renewal, mm. uh, the chance mm. to go back out onto the land and try to rekindle some of that knowledge and some of those ways of life. And that is happening in real life, too. You know, what you're seeing pop up across the continent are Indigenous land-based initiatives to um, teach people the skills. Um, and we're not talking just about, like, hunting and setting up shelter. We're talking about identifying medicines, harvesting them, preparing them, knowing what they treat, uh, you know, just having that harmonious coexistence with the land that, you know, really thrived here uh, since well before the arrival of settlers. And there is hope in that knowledge still persisting, you know, in that knowledge actually still even just existing in the first place because it was supposed to be totally wiped out. You know, if the colonial orders had their way, they would have totally just wiped everybody out. Yeah. You know, everybody, all the indigenous yeah. people would have been killed off if they were able to do it. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, and and somewhere along the line, uh, they realized that was cruel and unfeasible. So uh, they decided the next best thing would be to erase identity and culture. And, and that's where you have, you know, residential schools in Canada, boarding schools in the States and, and so on. Uh, but what happened in those institutions, and, and I... I reflect on this and pay tribute to these children constantly. Um, what happened in residential schools where children would gather in secret and whisper their language to each other. Um, they would whisper stories to each other. They would try to memorize the ceremonies that they weren't allowed to do. And they would ensure that they carry that with them, even with the, poten the potential of, of physical abuse or even death, right? Um, that was punishable knowledge or punishable expressions. Yeah. Uh, so I think about what those people potentially sacrifice, you know, they put their lives at risk to ensure that people like me could still have these cultural elements to, uh, to drive to drive us with, you know, and, and beyond that, once these schools, you know, cease to exist, um, or once people who were in them uh, left, or the people who were left behind, you know, they held ceremonies in secret at the same time. And uh, my, my first book is called Midnight Sweat Lodge, and uh, it's a collection of short stories about being a young uh, Anishinaabe person on the res. But it's called Midnight Sweat Lodge because the first sweat lodges I ever went to when I was a kid were held at night. And I didn't know that mm. sweat lodges could be held during the day. I just thought they always happened at night. And the reason they happen at mm. night in my community was uh, that's when they started holding them because the Indian agent was off duty. And the Indian agent was wow. the person who would uh, enforce the Indian Act uh, in the community and, you know, break up ceremonies and fine and arrest people for doing cultural things and so on. So once the Indian agent was off shift, that's when, you know, people in my community would start having the sweat lodge, you know, at 
at midnight, essentially. So um, I think of those people who did those things, who made those sacrifices and held mm-hmm. ceremonies in their basements with the lights off and, and so on, right? So I, that's where I draw hope from. Um, it's really pushing back against, you know, violent oppressors, against brutalizers and yeah. allowing culture to survive and thrive. And, and if, you know, our ancestors, our recent ancestors overcame that, then, you know, the sky is potentially the limit. We could fully revitalize Anishinaabe or wider Indigenous realities um, due to our resilience, due to what we've overcome. Um, So, yeah, that's where the hope lies in an end-of-the-world story like Moon of the Crescent Snow. Mm. Well, in light of that, we know you're working on a sequel to Moon of the Crescent Snow, and so excited about it. Um, is there anything that you can share with us about that story? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, uh, well, I never planned to to write a sequel to Moon of the Crescent Snow. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I will say I, I owe this all to readers. You know, I, I owe this part of my life to readers who are so enthusiastic about the book. And I'm, I'm just so grateful uh, for you all. And uh, so the book is going to be taking place about 10 years after the end of uh, the first book. And it's going to be a quest story, you know, a group of uh, travelers, a group of walkers is going to head south to try to find out what's left of the world, Uh, but at the same time, try to reconnect with their original homelands. Because uh, if you've read the book, Mm -hmm. you'll remember that uh, they tell the story of being displaced from the Great Lakes up to far northern Ontario. And um, yeah, so, so they want to go back and see if they can, you know, resettle in that area and also see what's left of the world. So uh, it's going to be a, a lot longer. Um, I think there are some things that I'll be able to explore with it, right? Like I really wanted to explore mm-hmm. uh, some queer relationships within that community. Um, but I think I will be Ooh. able to uh, look into that in, in, in a more proper way with the second one, right? And um, just how uh, a community, a Anishinaabe community, you know, a decade or so after the end of the world uh, rebuilds itself and how the cultural and social dynamics of the community itself uh, thrive once again. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually I actually just finished writing, writing a little chunk before we started talking. So it's uh, my ah, head is totally awesome. back into that world. And it's, it's fun to be there for sure. Well, that just sounds like something everybody's thirsty yeah. for. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Wab. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, Matt and Nina, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, It's an opportunity for me to share some of my culture, but also some of my perspective, too. So spending all this time with me having this chat is uh, greatly appreciated. And uh, just chmiigwech. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night, Wab. So from here on, we're going to keep talking about Moon of the Crusted Snow and give our usual in-depth treatment to this wonderful book. And we wanted to give you a bit of a warning that from here on out, there will be some spoilers. We will be talking about some scenes in more depth. So if you haven't read the book yet, feel free to pause the episode here and um, come back to it when you've had a chance to check it out if you'd like to do that. Yeah. So as the winter goes on and, you know, I think it's, it's such an interesting thing that I think rice gets across where something that I think I've, you know, we've all experienced in this last year too, which is just the accumulation of stress over the, over time in the course of a crisis situation like this. Um, People keep dying. People are worried that there's not going to be enough food. Things keep not going back to like quote unquote normal. And it's this kind of like cycle of trauma that happens. And so the community, you know, like even though there's a lot of communal knowledge and experience for how to deal with the situation, 
there's also a lot of communal memory and experience of despair and the community is getting weaker. And as the community gets weaker, Justin Scott tries to flex his strength more and more. He's sort of like implying as these as these guys always do that he's the leader who has the who has the tools to fix this problem. He's the only one who's going to be able to do quote, you know, like what needs to be done. What needs to be done? Dun dun dun. <laughs> it's really and it really is it really is actually a, a dun 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 situation though because there's a moment when a character who's been living in the compound where Justin Scott is um sort of the boss insinuates that there's something really not good going on over there and this is a spoiler so proceed with caution if you want to read it on your own but based on a comment that Scott made earlier where he insinuated that he had a special, unique source of food. Um, yeah. <laughs> so special, so unique. <laughs> cannibalism. <laughs> and, and thus the rise of cannibalism. I mean, you know, one thing, Nina, when I like decided to do this podcast was I, I didn't like, do, there's so much cannibalism in this fiction. You know? Yes. There, there's always a moment. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I was thinking about it. And I was like, it makes sense. Like, it is a really upsetting thing when you're in a dystopian or apocalyptic scenario. And this novel is no exception. I th- I think that's so, it's so interesting in this context for so many reasons. I mean, I think you're right. Like, it's at the center of so many dystopian narratives because it's like, one of the things they want to prove is that this is such a serious situation that taboos must be broken. Right. But it's interesting to me that cannibalism is so often the one that people go for. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is just about this sort of like desire to make it okay that one might have to do that, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I think probably has lots of different historical and cultural things feeding it, in- including things like cannibalism is a big part of stories of settling America. Um, <laughs> things like the Donner Party, you know, like this idea of like moving West and running out of food. And it's also a big part of the projections onto indigenous folks being kind of like automatically offhand referred to as cannibals. As this major taboo, it's something that gets projected onto, you know, quote unquote outsiders. So the image of like indigenous people as cannibals is, I think, also behind the way that the trope gets deployed in this book in particular, which is that this guy walks in here, A, he's like the exact guy who would call them cannibals. And of course, and he's like the first person to be like, when can we eat each other? (laughs) Jeez, I know. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I've been ready for this forever. (laughs) I mean, he's like stalking his garage. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of that of our conversation with Allison Rollins too, because she mentioned that one of the two books that was like kind of getting was was kind of one of the like sacred texts, not for her, but that she kind of learned about through the survivalism course was this book Alive. Right. Also a book I loved when I was a kid, um, which I just think is kind of funny. But <laughs> it's it's a book that like the center of that book is also cannibalism because yeah. it's a it's a nonfiction story about a group of Uruguayan soccer players who crash in the Andes and have and end up in a situation where they do have to eat the bodies of the dead. And it's such a compassionate story about that 
that eating. Like there is so much compassion for the people who have to make this choice. Yeah. And um, I don't know. There's something there about like, why is that book like of all of the books of like disaster survivalism so famous? And I feel like it is this sort of like loving, compassionate treatment of the choice to eat each other. There is really something there like that we really want it to be okay. <laughs> like- <laughs> so interesting. I was actually just watching my partner play um, Fallout New Vegas. And, you know, we've had folks say we should do Fallout on this podcast and, you know, totally on board hundreds of hours of gameplay that we could watch if we started talking about that. (laughs) But of course, you know, post-apocalyptic. And there was a side mission that involved this secret society that, you know, of course, it's like people are all living in these underground vaults and all the underground vaults have all these different cultures. And of course, the story in this one was, it was just like secret society. It's like in a casino kind of environment that drum roll had a history of cannibalism. (laughs) And there's actually this storyline where you like find this guy that wants to like bring back cannibalism and (laughs) he wants to make cannibalism great again. He's making cannibalism (laughs) great again. (laughs) He has a mustache. (laughs) And what Uh... happens is he tries to serve people a meal and then after they've eaten it, he's like, guess what it is? <laughs> it's like chocolate zucchini cake. <laughs> he's, like, he's, like, he's like, I snuck it in. You'll never guess. Seriously, it's like those. What? Hide the taboo. You know, yeah. Hide it in there. You know, um, you know, stick blender. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> no one will ever know until you reveal it to them and then you're all in it together. Exactly. Yeah, it's about implication. <laughs> that was what it was. It was supposed to be, now we've all done this thing. Now we can all be in confidence as having like collectively broken this taboo. <laughs> yeah, and, and I feel like that is exactly it. Like for me, that like wanting it to be okay to eat each other, like it just makes me think so much about capitalism generally and the sort of like idea of resource extraction. Like once you start down this road of like everything is just, worth its value in whatever it can do for you and and doesn't have its own intrinsic subjective value of its own like like that road does always end in cannibalism <laughs> you know like yeah i think that yeah that's a really good point i think that's part of what's behind this being at the center of so many post apocalyptic scenes of crossing a boundary and in fact that idea of like capitalism as cannibalism um is connected to the Wendigo in the work of Winona LaDuke, who is also an Anishinaabe author and activist and economist. And some of the stuff that she talks about is like, uh, she uses this term Wendigo infrastructure and Wendigo economy um, to talk about like the ways that capitalism is like a cannibalistic sort of self-consuming system that privileges a sort of like overconsumption to the point of like destroying the things that you depend on for life. I mean, it's so interesting to think about that from the lens of this Justin Scott guy, you know, having said that he seems like the sort who would accuse indigenous people of being a cannibal. It it just makes me think of how like those kinds of figures, 
use a, a gaslighting rhetoric where they yes. accuse other people of doing the very thing that they are in fact now doing. Right. Um, and that is just such as we've seen in the past four years under the, the Trump administration, that is such a horrifyingly powerful way to get people to be disoriented yeah, exactly. That I think that's totally it. He's like using it not because I mean they have food. Like it's not even like they're starving. He's just wants a way to control all these people that he doesn't have any right to. <laughs> so like, you know, so he's like by making you complicit with this horrible thing, then I will be the sort of like author and daddy of your of your shame. And then you'll have to come to me in order to in order to feel that shame assuaged, or you know, there's there's that kind of like complex emotional mechanic to it. Ugh. Yes. Oh, it's so it's it's so it's so creepy and unsettling. Just thinking that moment when they're sort of in line to get the food that they're distributing out for the week, and Evan ends up getting into a fight with some folks in the line because there's conflict over this, you know legitimately scary panic inducing situation for this community and scott shows up and is like you know see like you guys can't even keep your own people under control or something like that and he sort of uses that as a justification for why his way is the way that people should follow which is sort of like him being like if you have conflict and disagreement then there's something wrong and the alternative yeah. to that is to join into this like sinister, like intimidation and terror based authority structure that eliminates the possibility of people expressing them- themselves through conflict and instead involves apparently like the ultimate form of resource extraction. <laughs> right. right there when that moment goes on, where he's yeah. like, you know, the thing I'm promising you is, again, this idea of purity, this lack of conflict. Everybody is going to be, like, obedient to this structure that I create. And then that's what's going to be there is, is like, literal terror, no respect for people. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Talk about your Wendigo infrastructure. You're basically describing prison industrial system. Exactly. So... I guess I'm thinking about if one of the things that this book does is try and almost exercise this specter of the white prepper survivalist. Like, do you feel like he's gone? Do you feel, <laughs> do you feel free of him after this <laughs> conversation? <laughs> oh, man, I wish I felt free of him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... I have talked a lot about this notion of disorientation, the disorientation of feeling like suspicious and unsettled by a figure that's characterized by popular media as a hero. Yeah. And the disorientation that comes from gaslighting people by accusing them of doing things that you are in fact doing in order to exploit them. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that um, reorienting Moon of the Crusted Snow does is a way of performing an exorcism of a specter or an ideology as something that has a hold over you 
Because to me, feeling disempowered by a myth or a figure comes from that specter just popping up and appearing when I don't mean it to, or I, or I don't understand why it is. Yeah. And I, I think this figure has historically in my own life just sort of popped up everywhere in my own mind as a voice that speaks and dictates how I think, you know, as a mode of existence, as a family history. Yeah. And I didn't understand why it was happening and felt incredibly scared of it and incredibly focused on it. But, you know, I, the more I understand it through work like this book, the less scared I am when he does pop up, which I think he will continue to do even past any sort of exorcism that we could bring about through this type of analysis. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, also, you know, if we're going to be talking about apocalyptic narratives in the, like, I guess, Western cultural tradition, then he's going to be around. (laughs) And he's also, you know, I mean, I think you, you know, you talked about family history and, and I, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about just like being a white person. He's part of our, he's part of our inheritance, you know, he's, he's part of our culture. And like, I feel like there is, you know, for me, I guess it makes me realize like it could never be that easy, even if one stops sort of gaslighting oneself with his voice you know like um which would be lovely (laughs) it's still so much a part of how I got to be you know the person that I am in the position that I am like just it's so much entrenched in in my history and my family history and I feel like that's in this book too you know from the perspective of an Anishinaabe author and you know, written through the through the mind and voice of an Anishinaabe main character. Um, but I think that there is also one of the other things that I love about this book and that Wob talked about in the interview just now is like, and we've heard this from guests before too, in different in different forms. I think Treandria was talking about this too. Allison was talking about this. Like just there isn't like it's not binary. Then and and like the sort of non-binary experience of apocalypse, one facet of that is also this fact that like we don't get to just say like, okay, that's done, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like like that history's over and and now we get to move on you know, totally free of that. Like one of the, you know, one of the ways that the Justin Scott character controls people in the novel is through the fact that he brought a whole lot of alcohol with him. That's one of the things he had in his snowmobile. Like it's just, you know, this classic thing. And the main character talks a lot about the ambivalence he feels about drinking and these kind of feelings of shame. And to me, that resonates with this with the way that voice gets in one's head and affects one's relationship to to alcohol, to love, to you know, to oneself, and and it's all still there. It's all still there in this story, but they're moving on anyway. <laughs> they're moving on with it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about this idea of this Wendigo and thinking about the idea of having. A relationship as an individual or as a culture with a monster like that. And, you know, there's, I think, a very human desire to delete the monster. Yeah. And if the monster is in the past, we imagine um, some kind of maybe, (laughs) if we're going to stick with the world of fiction, uh, memory device that allows you to erase 
the monster from your personal history. You know, initially, that's a really appealing idea. And, you know, it's evocative for me to think about um, alcohol consumption as a way of trying to create that that sort of erasure oh, wow. um, or yeah. annihilation of this like really painful past and the shame that comes with it um, and all those negative feelings. But then the flip side to that is um, it's not really possible to just sort of selectively delete a memory without destabilizing all of the identity formation that has come as a result of reacting to that monster, coping with that monster, becoming someone as a result of that reaction and that coping. And some of the reactions that you have to negativity are resilience and adventurousness and bonding um, as a result of struggling with something that's legitimately painful and terrible and threatening and negative. And so it's not really possible to delete a monster. And I think that's why I was saying like, you know, if we think of an exorcism, um, what's being exorcised isn't the monster. It's more the legitimately painful desire for the monster and everything that's associated with it to be deleted and forever gone. Um, which would in, in in many ways, unfortunately, annihilate your entire identity, which <laughs> I hate to say that that's true because it's something that I would have to accept in my own life, thinking about my own specters, my own monsters, yeah. my own prepper and the other figures like him, because what you end up having to say is, well, I'm sort of, because my identity stems from their existence in some ways, I'm stuck with them. I mean, and just linking it back with Moon of the Crusted Snow, I mean, I see that type of understanding in lots of different scenes in the way that characters kind of encounter that truth. You know, we were talking about uh, some of the scenes where we saw the characters drinking and just the appreciation of that truth um, is, I think, really evocative and powerful. The fact that it's in the text that there is this really complicated relationship with like enjoying and also feeling shame about booze. Yeah. 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 And I think it's something we're going to keep seeing too in like a lot of the best dystopian and post apocalyptic stuff that we read, really. I mean, I think it's true in Butler. And I think, I, I hope we get to read, you know, more dystopian books that have that complicated and, and humane a relationship to what it's like to be a person who actually tries to, to move on in this world and not the perfect imaginary one that we would, you know, maybe love and maybe like absolutely hate to snap our fingers and make so. (laughs) Well, I'm really looking forward to reading more books that that do that because it, again, is reorienting for me in my life and in my body instead of being posed as this fantasy of something that would never be possible to aspire to. Yeah. Well, lucky us, Nat, because there are so many great dystopias being written right now. And Actually, there are really a lot of amazing dystopias specifically being written by indigenous authors, and some of them are recently out, some of them have been out for quite a while, and many have queer characters and queer authors, and we definitely hope to cover more on the show. But in the meantime, that's going to be our next Queers at the End of the World Presents. We're going to be sharing some awesome titles for you to check out, and that'll be next week. Yes, it's awesome. I'm here for it. I love it. This has been Queers at the End of the World. 
Next time on Queers at the End of the World, we'll be leaving those boys behind in the woods where they're happiest and heading thousands of years into the future to talk about giant mushroom forests and flying machines in the 1982 through 1994 manga Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And joining us as co-host for both episodes on Nausicaa will be the cosmic jelly herself, Eliana Gasawa, whose love for the manga is really what brought us to cover it on the show in the first place. It's going to be great! Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fine des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. If you're a queer person making apocalyptic and dystopian media, and you have something you'd like us to read, watch, play, or listen to, or you just have a great idea for a topic we should cover on the show, get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right, good luck out there, dear hearts. 